Welcome to another episode of Latin America Review. I'm Camila Escalante, and today I'm joined with members of the Black Alliance for Peace. And this panel of Black Alliance for Peace organizers took a trip recently to Cuba, and we're also talking about a new campaign launch earlier this month. The Black Alliance for Peace, uh, I believe, turned six years old, if I'm not mistaken, and launched a new campaign uh, called Zone of Peace. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So with me today are Clau. She's been helping us learn a little bit about what's been going on in Peru and has been largely based in Lima and has joined us for a couple of streams uh, and was speaking to Ollie on a couple of occasions. We have Erica Keynes, who also does Latin America Solidarity and has been on board with some of the stuff we've done with the Nicaragua Solidarity Coalition. And Austin and Tunde as well. I know I've seen Austin do a lot of different events around the U.S. I don't know if you're based in Los Angeles, Austin, but I saw you. We covered some things that you participated in in Los Angeles with um, our correspondent, Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I'm based in Boston, um, but I got the chance to come out to L.A. Yeah, and and meet Abraham and and, um, got there with Erica as well. Awesome. So it's so great to see you guys, and it was really good to see you there in Cuba. Um, actually, why were you guys in Cuba? Was it a delegation or were you there for a particular event? I actually didn't uh, get to see. Uh, Clau? So we went there um, both as um, part of the first part of the trip was the uh, Zone of Peace launch. Uh, the first two days there, we met with some uh, organizations on the ground there. ECAP, uh, the, Inst- the Cuban Institute for uh, Solidarity with Cuban Peoples, um, and then also the uh, Cuban Association for the UN, which is where we actually did launch the Zone of Peace campaign on the 4th. Uh, and then the second latter half of the delegation, the trip was with, we spent with um, the Red Barial Afrodescendiente, um, which is a community organization uh, there has been around for 12 years. Um, was basically incubated through the MLK, the Martin Luther King Center in in Havana um, to do popular education. Um, And we just got to meet a lot of really amazing folks that um, have been doing this kind of work, uh, black by black organizing um, that you don't see see too often in the US or there's very much a a lack of that um, real on the ground uh, black by black organizing. but yeah, so we we were able to do a lot in this um, seven, eight day trip that we were there. We were definitely busy. And um, Austin, because you have to go, can you tell us a little bit of what your experience was like? Was this your first time in Cuba? Um, what have been your impressions? I noticed that you speak Spanish really well. So I'm not sure if you're Latin American or how you picked that up. But what was your experience uh, during this delegation? Yeah, um, thank you. I'll I'll take the I'll take the positive reinforcement, um, Camila. No, I um, so I actually went to Cuba uh, ten years ago in 2013. Um, I studied there for a semester, um, and that's really where I first learned to to actually speak Spanish beyond you know learning in a classroom. Um, it for me going this time to Cuba was really really um, I think important and fascinating. One, because I'd been there 10 years ago, right? And so I've seen a little bit of, you know, I've I've studied um, a little bit about Cuba, um, been there, done some work there in the past. And it was really incredible to see in 10 years how much things had changed, right? 
not all for the better. You know, there's a lot of challenges because the blockade and the sanctions against Cuba have gotten worse in the last 10 years, right? Um, since the Trump administration and then um, since the Biden administration continues to keep in a lot of those policies and actually reinforce a lot of the things as well and a lot of the challenges. So from an economic standpoint, um, there was, you know, a lot of issues, you know, shortages with gas and food, um, all these various different things caused by the campaign, um, shortage of medical supplies and many other things. So that was challenging. But I think for me, what was really positive and was really hopeful was all the changes that I've seen kind of in the social um in like the social and political sphere that have happened in Cuba over the last 10 years. And for me, it was really a testament to the revolutionary process that's ongoing in Cuba. I think for me, when I went 10 years ago, it was amazing to see, I studied a lot about race, right? And about blackness in Cuba and what it means, what, what that kind of means, right? And then to come this time, and as Klaus said, we were with the Red Barriala for the Sendiente. We were with a bunch of, we talked with a bunch of other organizers and organizations as well, who are working on many different levels in anti-racist work um, against discrimination, both racial discrimination, gender and sexuality, um, and many other issues. And I think what's really amazing is that from the bottom up, a lot of those things have been embraced by the kind of Cuban mainstream political apparatus, right? Including all the way up to the president, right? And there is a national plan against racism and racial discrimination. And there's sort of both this top, um, this kind of over the top, top down approach as well as kind of a bottom up grassroots approach. So for me, it was, it was really exciting to see kind of how vibrant the kind of civil society organizations who are working on anti-racist work um, are and how much they've advanced you know, in the last 10 years and how much the conversation has advanced in the last 10 years from when I was there before. So for me, it was, it was really incredible to kind of see that transformation um, and to see that progress that, that's been made over, over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. And Erica, one of the things Austin mentioned was that the rights are much more um, entrenched. And I think to some extent, the systematic racism has been removed because of, you know, the deliberate uh, decisions of the government, and that has largely come from below. But there have been some online campaigns that have tried to make some claims that, you know, racism still exists in Cuba as it does everywhere. What were your experiences when you when you guys met with the um, Red de Afrodescendiente and these other um, organizations, but what was your experience from what you heard from from Black communities there? My experience, this was my first time in Cuba. I've had comrades who have obviously gone to Cuba before um, who have said this, but, but my experience was that it's a very African nation um, from the um, from the time that we went to the Yoruba Center, obviously we were with a a, a black based or African based um, network of organizations. That's the delegation we were on. Um, but everything, the town that we were in um, in Havana when we went to Matanzas, it's very very um, African based. So I think people's perception of these countries uh, are strongly based on the pop the propaganda around them. Obviously, when we on television and media, they are always showing or depicting these nations as uh, mostly <laughs> white or non-black. So when you see these things, it's, it's a bit of a shock to see how black this nation was or is um, because that's not what's depicted. And then it makes sense. It makes more sense why there's such a, a, a campaign to, uh, 
regain Cuba in the way that that it is. And I think the the thing that we see, especially um, during the um, attempts <laughs> uh, during those protests in July 2021, in um, the cries about uh, racist racism, particularly in, in Cuba being innately anti-black, um, is that people in the U.S. Uh, have this habit, especially on the left, of analyzing these nations on one to one because anti, I mean, excuse me, because racism is so high um, and so um, ineved in, in the structure and policies of this nation. Um, a child was just shot in the head. Uh, so this is not something that we that. Cuba's experience. It's a different type of battle that they're fighting because the revolution has brought forth so much um, advances to how they're able to address racism on a structural level. So their issue is not structural level. It's more of a social issue with racism. It's trying to turn over and um, unlearn habits and patterns and depictions that largely are run on by the West. And when we talk about um, <clears throat> The tourism industry, the blockade plays a huge part in that. Um, the inability for folks to get what they need um, is strongly um, determined by who they can get it from in the U.S. And it's a lot easier for the non-Black uh, sector um, of society in Cuba to receive and to get money and to you know, garner tourism than it is for Africans in Cuba. And that is by way of the blockade. Um, so when people talk about racism in Cuba, excuse me, racism, racism in Cuba, and they leave out the blockade, um, it's a it's a frustrating sort of um, discussion because they minimize a lot of it. Um, but being there, what we what I've got to witness, especially in Matanza, there was a whole blackout. Um, and we know how we had no idea how long it was gonna last. It was a couple hours for us, but that was on our last day in Matanzas. And this is a happenstance for them. This is just an everyday sort of way of life. Um, they were able to function where it was just a little shocking for me that it's like, oh, we don't have no lights. You know, it's it's already a struggle to, you know, get Wi-Fi and those type of things. So to have a, a blackout, it's to have it consistently. Um, these are things that are caused and brought on by the blockade. Even the local um, frustration with trash in particular neighborhoods, um, <clears throat> that's brought on by the blockade, the inability to get gas so they cannot remove the trash. Um, so these are things that are looked at as like particularly racist because they're happening to marginalized uh, sectors. But I don't think the Africans in in Cuba are marginalized in the way that we understand marginalization because it's not a one-to-one. -one. Um, and I think that they have a lot more uh, political power as Africans in a nation than we do. And I don't think that we even understand or can grasp that because we haven't had a revolution that brought on those sort of structural changes in society. So their battle and their anti-racist fight is more about changing the minds and the societal uh, points of views about Africanness and about Blackness, um, not so much a fight for rights. Yeah, and obviously it's important to say that there's just very low levels of police brutality, gun violence, and obviously 
police unloading guns on citizens there. I mean, that virtually doesn't exist against anyone. Dunde, uh, what was your experience? Have you been to Cuba before? And, um, you know, how did you view things um, in terms of how people are, you know, dealing uh, with the sanctions and try trying to mitigate those effects? Yeah, uh, this was my uh, second time in Cuba. Uh, the first time was also on a delegation with the Red Barrial Afrodescendiente with another organization uh, named Community Movement Builders, which I'm also a part of. Um, I'm based here in Atlanta. Um, and so, you know, we uh, uh, were engaged in, you know, kind of like an exchange similar to what uh, we did on this uh, um, Zone of Peace uh, a center delegation with the Black Alliance for Peace. Uh, and so that uh, 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 was my first time kind of engaging with uh, a Cuban um, civil society and, 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 you know, starting to build the uh, relationship with the Red Barrio Afrodescendiente. Um, and, you know, both times that I, I was, uh, I've gotten the chance to visit, um, uh, you know, I've been struck by the, um, you know, just the levels of, uh, uh, coordination that uh, these, um, you know, civil society organizations have uh, uh, on uh, on the island. Um, I, I think, you know, they, their level of organization and, and coordination is, is something that we can only aspire to here in, in, in the U.S. Um, and the fact that they are, you know, working in tandem with their, you know, revolutionary state is, is very impressive. I think, you know, to speak to your question on how folks are dealing with um, you know, the blockade. I, I think there's so many different challenges that are brought on by that, you know, shortages uh, of, you know, things like food and, and, you know, gasoline, which I think, you know, Austin and, and others already kind of spoke to were, were very, uh, uh, you know, intense, right? Like folks were lining up outside of the gas stations for days to, to you know, fill up their, their tanks. Uh, you know, there were times when we were struggling with transportation. Uh, because of that, you know, we, we were seeing delays of, of you know, uh, like sometimes hours to, to get to where we needed to go. Um, you know, so a lot of times we were at a restaurant and, you know, on the menu, uh, there were so many uh, uh, items that just weren't available. And I mean, I saw that both times I, I visited. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, those are those are, are minor things. But, you know, we spoke to folks who, you know, were, um, you know, kind of just waiting for for medical supplies to, to uh, uh you know, kind of uh, go through surgeries, right? Like people who didn't have access to, uh, um, you know, the the correct uh, medication uh, uh, to to access the care that they needed. Um, you know, there's so many challenges that I think are brought on by the blockade. Uh, and and you know, one thing that we try to do on both delegations with were, were to bring uh, items, bring uh, donations to uh, uh, kind of help with um, you know the challenges that the folks we were. Um, you know, trying to build relationships with we're facing. So, you know, both times we bought suitcases full of donativos, I guess we called them, uh, that, uh, um, you know, some of some of them had medical supplies. Others, you know, had, uh, you know, gender affirming supplies like make, makeup and, and uh, you know, like wigs and, and, and dresses and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it, it was, uh, um, you know, kind of a, an eye-opening ex experience. Well, both times in terms of just the day-to-day uh, challenges that the blockade presents uh, to the Cuban people, and especially, um, you know, uh, black and and um, uh, uh, well, you know, Cuban people in general, but you know, the black folks that we were engaging with, the uh, you know, um, uh, uh, folks uh, uh, of 
I, I don't want to use this term, but Mar Marzahn genders or, or what, you know, uh, I, I think that was, was very enlightening, so. Well, why don't we get into what the campaign um, is, the campaign that was launched. Um, first of all, Clau, why don't you tell us the significance of the date that the campaign was launched? Um, and then we can go around and have everyone talk a little bit um, about why it's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, April 4th, um, both is our Black Lines for Peace's uh, six year anniversary, but the reason we launched on that day um, was 50 years earlier um, MLK was was taken from us, um, someone that we consider uh, to be continuing and building on the legacy of his anti-imperialist, uh, anti anti-militarist, pro-peace stance. Um, and, you know, a year before that, on April 4th, um, before he was um, murdered, gave the, uh, you know, Vietnam War speech that really solidified those, those um, politics and and for us that's that's like really where we build off and center our work is around the radical peace the black radical peace tradition um that we think maybe, you know has and in a lot of ways has been you know watered down co-opted but um i think building the work that we've been doing the past six years building really on the ground uh organizations coordinating nationally and now as we're trying to do internationally um so the Zone of Peace um, was in 2014, it was a declaration from SELAC, from the state-centered um, you know, call for making this region, seeing and respecting this region as a zone of peace, right? So free of US and Western militarism uh, and, and the, you know, however many bases there are, um, predominantly in Peru and Colombia with uh, Southcom, but throughout the region, right? Um, CARICOM and the Caribbean, SOUTHCOM uh, in South America. And um, so, yeah, we launched on that day as, as, a, as a way to rededicate ourselves to, to that tradition. Um, and though SELAC's call was, back in 2014 was more state-centered, uh, state um, we uh, really wanted to, to activate the popular movement aspect of that, right? We understand that peace isn't the you know, absence of conflict, but the struggle through the victory through popular struggle um, of these, of a better society that we want, right? Um, without war, uh, without sanctions, without, which are, you know, economic war by another name um, and, and all the machinations that we see in our region to, um, you know, thwart popular uh, the popular will. I mean, we see that in Peru right now. Um, you know, the parliamentary coup um, that you know now is past 120 days, so it's four months past uh, the coup, and, and there's still no justice for the over 80 people that have been murdered. Um, so it's that's just one example of of right the uh, Western machinations in our region that we we see as the people really just wanting like actual sovereignty right um so so that that in a nutshell is um you know what what we what the zone of peace is and and it's really just you know while we may have uh started and coordinated it this is really a call for for the popular movements of the region to take this on and build it together yeah and i think it's really important the campaign is really timely because 
you know, we saw the threat of military intervention in our region once again in 2019 after Juan Guaido, a virtually unknown lawmaker in the Venezuelan parliament, swore himself in in the middle of the street and then got all of these official verified online accounts and all of this fake government appeared online, um, a parallel government obviously run out of Washington, D.C. In the the two years that followed, we saw a lot of um, aggression from the Trump administration, particularly from Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, um, but a lot of threats from Marco Rubio and other people as well, and people both in the U.S. government, also pundits on cable news, and also right-wing opposition people of the Venezuelan opposition that lives in, in the United States, also who live in Madrid, for example, and Bogota, were calling for military intervention. They were just making these calls out in the open. You know, it was very difficult to speak out against this media smear campaign against Venezuela, which still continues today, but has also, you know, heightened against other countries like Nicaragua, like Iran, and of course, Russia. Unfortunately, during that time, it was very difficult to support Venezuela, but I don't necessarily think it's always only you know, the the role um, and the responsibility of people like ourselves to speak out, which obviously we always have to. But I think there was a big opening there for Caribbean governments and other governments of Latin America to speak out and say that, you know, this aggression and this threat of a military invasion on Venezuelan soil or at Venezuelan shores or in the Caribbean Sea, the Atlantic Sea, that it's a threat to all of us. But I feel like there were very few voices making those sorts of statements at the time. Um, And they only started to make those sorts of statements when it became convenient. This could have turned into a very serious situation that we haven't seen in a long time because we don't really have outright invasions, although we've continued to see coups and intervention. Um, You know, what they were trying to do from Colombia and, you know, sending more patrols to the Caribbean Sea um, around the different islands um, under the, you know, under the pretext of fighting narco trafficking and and patrolling the waters from Fort you know, against transnational criminal uh, crime was totally, you know, made up and it it, it could have become a a really serious situation. So related to that now, you know, we still continue to hear these leaders and governments proclaim that this is, of course, a zone of peace, as was pronounced by Salak in 2014. But we still see the calls internationally for, you know, for foreign military intervention in Haiti. And there are literally huge uh, donations, military donations, donations to the police force uh, taking place right now before our eyes. And a lot of the people who are rooting it on are rooting it on from our region. So Erica, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned Haiti. Um, as you see with Cloud's name, uh, we are the Black Alliance to Bees Haiti America's team for that region. Of reason, we understand Haiti being central in the region as a sort of a testing ground for how these sort of military interventions play out, um, especially when we look at the role that the core group of the OAS plays. And so it's really significant, like a nation that Nicaragua would ban the OAS um, because it plays those particular roles in how it maneuvers in um 
partner, you know, deciding who is leadership in that country. I think one of the things that uh, we were taken aback by is CELAC's position on Haiti um, coming out of that, uh, primarily because CELAC has the position of Zone of Peace. So I think that's why it was very important for us to launch this campaign as a people's popular movement, because we see that the states are inevitably beholden to playing diplomacy. And that comes at the expense of nations like Haiti, um, because to recognize uh, leadership where there is no actual uh, democratic process for um, any type of leadership um, is really a slap in the face to what the zone of peace is actually uh, said to stand for, which is sovereignty and self-determination and the right for these nations in the region, um, in our Americas, to decide for themselves. So when you recognize um, leadership in a country like Haiti um, that uh, following the assassination of Moise has never had any election process because it was always essentially intervened by the West and the UN and the core group um, who had made the decision collectively to um, place Henri into uh, a place of, of leadership. Um, and the people have, as you've seen when his return from CELAC and they were uh, demonstrating um, an outright riding on the tarmac of the air of the airport he, he couldn't get out the plane um the people are not happy with this decision so i think it's very important that we raise up the the actual essential um uh, points and demands of the zone of peace um for that reason uh because we cannot forget about haiti uh haiti plays a very central role in in that region um especially when we look at uh you know, we, we heard a lot of the the leadership of Southcom blatantly state why they have an invested interest in the Americas and in Haiti is one of those uh, land rich resource uh, based um, nations uh, where they can you know, intervene in the government and decide how much a, a working population gets paid, um, how much a working population is allowed to eat. And so they, these are these are genuine problems. And then when you look at the time where there was calls for um, excessive crime and, and the need for intervention, which was the fall of last year, as those things were heightening up, Turks and Caicos was um, under uh, no fly, like people were not allowed to fly in and out of Turks and Caicos uh, because it was also being occupied uh, by the West uh, because of quote unquote crime. Um, Jamaica right now is having a similar situation where they are talking about intervening as well. So, um, you know, CARICOM's position regarding the Caribbean has always has always and often been a very soft shoe position, um, not wanting to anger the U.S. specifically um, too much while, uh, you know, giving lip service to a particular sovereignty. We've seen that with the uh, Summit of Americas, where everyone had a lot to say, uh, but still showed up anyway. <laughs> um, so so these things are, are really particularly important um, to raise up, um, especially when we look at the the actual demands or the initial core demands of uh, the campaign 
of the launch of the campaign, which is to dismantle Southcom and the U.S. NATO military exercises, disband U.S. sponsored state terrorist training facilities, oppose military intervention in, into Haiti, return Guantanamo to Cuba, and then recognize sanctions as an act of war, um, because. These are things that are being proliferated by the U.S. and the West, um, particularly. But we are seeing all of those things play out simultaneously in a nation like Haiti. Yeah, and Tunde. Well, I will, first of all, today actually, the Southcom commander, General Laura Richardson, is in Argentina, and she has like a, a two or three day agenda there, where she's having meetings with the Defense Ministry. Um, if not with other um, parts of the uh, Argentine state. And it's really unfortunate because, of course, Argentina is one of the countries, along with Colombia, that is a major non-NATO ally, a designation that was made up by the U.S. to try to loop these additional countries into this military alliance, um, even though these are not necessarily all um North Atlantic countries. In fact, none of the countries of South America would be North Atlantic. And that status was also offered by Trump to Bolsonaro. And I'm not sure like on the official level, whether, you know, whether it was passed, because it's something that had to be sort of formalized by the Congress, but it was the it was the third country to be invited to that special designation. And of course, we know that these countries, particularly Colombia, have numerous military bases. Unfortunately, Honduras does as well, despite having a new leftist uh, president. And um, unfortunately, Chile and Argentina will also be used um, as military bases. Guyana is as well, Panama, Costa Rica, um, Shirley, Jamaica, and Haiti. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit. BAP also has this same um, long-running campaign, which is um, U.S. or uh, AFRICOM. What is it? US, tell me what the like yeah. is. U.S. Out of Africa shut down AFRICOM campaign. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that because that's you know it goes right in hand with 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 this um, with this call from 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 our region. Absolutely. So um, we understand that uh, if there's no people-centered approach to this zone of peace campaign, um, then we'll see uh, structures like Southcom uh, uh, undermining the national and popular rights of people throughout the region, throughout the Americas. So these U.S. command structures like Southcom, Africom, the Indo-Pacific Command, and the, the uh, Asia Pacific region, right? They exist for the purpose of exercising U.S. control over the entire planet, really, with their doctrine, doctrine of full spectrum dominance, right? Military dominance. So, you know, at the Black Lines for Peace, we initiated the U.S. out of Africa shut down AFRICOM campaign um, uh, in 2018. And uh, every October during AFRICOM's founding anniversary, we mobilize people in this hemisphere and also in Africa itself to say shut down AFRICOM, withdraw US forces from Africa, US NATO forces and demilitarize the African continent, right? Uh, uh, close all 800 US bases that exist outside of this country uh, in Africa and on every other continent, right? So that, that's been our call since the beginning of the campaign in 2018. And of course we wanna shut down Southcom too. Uh, the Southcom commander who you mentioned openly says uh, the usually more quiet part um, uh, out loud when she says, you know, why is 
the Americas region important, you know, with all its rich resources and rare earth elements, you know, th there's the lithium triangle, which is, you know, really important for technology these days, right? So 60% of the world's lithium is found in that lithium triangle. And you mentioned Argentina, right? Obviously Bolivia and Chile are also part of that triangle. She, uh, the South Carolina commander talks about the need to box out, uh, you know, their adversaries, referring to China, obviously, and box out competitors in the region. So Southcom, like AFRICOM, exists to secure resources for U.S. multinational corporations, and in so doing, you know, exerting control over the people and the governments that should represent them. So for us, right, through this campaign, you know, we're talking about building up uh, the zone of peace by prioritizing a people-centered approach, a people-centered human rights approach, right, by observing, you know, the principles of national sovereignty, you know, equal rights and self-determination of, 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 you know, people throughout the region, right? We we think that, you know, though it, it's a state-centered proclamation or declaration, the zone of peace uh, declaration that, that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, proclaimed out of Havana, Cuba, which is why we went to Cuba uh, um, in 24, uh, it was proclaimed in 2014, uh, you know, it was groundbreaking in its scope, right? Because the member states pledged to support a principle of non-intervention, mutual cooperation, and uh, a commitment to international law and the United States Charter. Uh, and so, you know, of course we support that, but we we want we think that more has to be done. And so, you know, the Black Alliance for Peace, we affirm the right of peoples to self-determination. It's in our principles of unity. And so for us, that means that there has to be a grassroots, uh, a popular support for the zone of peace concept, right? So that these states can't just proclaim it and, you know, leave it there. It's, it's not enough for that, right? The people have to have a voice too if the declaration, if the proclamation is to become a reality. So that's why in our declaration, we say that BAP is building a region-wide coalition to rid the Americas of warmongers and foster a network of popular people's struggles, grounded and informed by the needs and aspirations of the oppressed, right? And so we think this network, which we're, I think we're calling the US NATO out of the Americas network, you know, that, that would anchor a unified, comprehensive strategy for radical social change and, and, and decolonization. Yeah, I, I completely agree that um, it's very easy to just in very vague terms agree with that proclamation that, you know, this region, Caribbean, Latin America has a zone of peace as they did those years, whatever governments were in power um, in the different countries. Um, but for some countries, it, for some governments, it, it simply means nothing, right? It's the same situation with the sanctions. A lot of countries in recent years have, have been a little bit more vocal. Their presidents have come out saying that the blockade is against Cuba is wrong. Why have we had it for 60 years? But at the same time, they're not in any way condemning or opposing um, sanctions and blockade against other countries, obviously, particularly Nicaragua. But Actually, like 40 countries are facing unilateral coercive measures right now, and that includes Zimbabwe and Iran and Syria and many others. Erica, you wanted to add that you also did, uh, you guys also, not you guys because you guys were in Havana, but the launch took place in Haiti as well. Yeah, no, I did. I, I think it's important to mention one of our goals and the objectives of the campaign um, 
is heightening the contradiction. So it was important for us to launch in um, not only in Havana, but we also launched in D.C. and um, launched out of Port-au-Prince with uh, our organization member of Montreal. Um, because I think uh, as we spoke to even being on the delegation and things that we witnessed, a lot of what we are attempting to push um, is the people-centered human rights framework um, that sort of uh, sort of laughs in the face of this sort of uh, Western hypocrisy or the hypocritical use of human rights, uh, quote unquote, which is what they use to past the unilateral sanctions that are affecting the, the entirety of the region. Um, but then it's also uh, important for us to have launched in these three different places because especially here, because we want to start um, normalizing the recognition of ourselves as part and parcel of the Americas, not just as uh, Africans that are here in the U.S. separate from what's happening, but recognize that there is no difference between Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay and the attempts to build Cop City, uh, recognizing that there is no difference between the unilateral sanctions that are being faced in um, Nicaragua and living in a food desert uh, with uh, welfare reform. So these are things that are important to make the connections because um, many of us within Black Alliance for Peace understand um, the internal colony framework where we understand ourselves as colonized, as a colonized nation within the U.S. So recognizing ourselves as colonized people helps um, connect domestic and uh, global imperialism as counterparts. And that's one of these things that I think is most important in this campaign, um, that it's not primarily US-led. Um, it is a coalition of key partnerships and key organizations and people uh, movements and processes uh, with that, that understanding of our positionality within um, the Americas. Yeah, and I think the work you guys do is just absolutely um, incredible because BAP has been very successful in its short life of coming together and being able to distribute its attention among different regions of the world, um, a lot of really key um, issues, specifically, I guess, some of, uh, you know, the, the members that we see a lot, uh, like Margaret, Kimberly, have had really strong positions um, on the special military operation in Ukraine and those sorts of things. I think it's been really uh, key. So do you have anything to add about what, what Erica and Tunde have just said, um, you know, the, the way in which Southcom in our region acts really just to facilitate the extraction of resources, particularly, of course, you know, just as well as anyone else in countries like Peru, where really it's just like, you know, people are just bartering um, and auctioning off uh, the resources there without in any way consulting with the people. And, you know, they're doing that both politically by trying to strip uh, the Peruvian people of any, you know, power they have politically, but also going in and quite literally almost occupying the country militarily and, and otherwise. Yeah, like like you said, coming here, coming, uh, well, I'm back in the U.S., but going to Peru for a few months um, to cover the protests and, and organize um, with folks on the ground um, was really eye-opening. I mean, they didn't, we didn't, although there is uh, popular education that happens, um, there didn't really need to be that much in terms of understanding who was behind, who were the actors behind the coup, right? Um, I went to the um, 
Plaza San Martín in the center where a lot of the government buildings are the first day of the general strike. And, you know, people were talking about how Lisa Kenna had met with Dina Boluarte a few days before. And then the defense minister, um, you know, people had people were talking about how many military bases there were in Peru, um, including some like new ones that they just potentially bought land to. Right. Um, so I think people understand um especially in the global South, you know, I think people understand what the forces are that are directly, um, you know, undermining their sovereignty, especially people in, in the um, provincia and the provinces where they see these mineral extractive mineral companies going into the Amazonia and, you know, um, just there's oil spills in the rivers. Doesn't matter. They they don't have to pay, um, you know, any any of the fines or even do any of the cleanup. You know, a year later after the Repsol spill, they still haven't had to uh, do any of um, any cleanup. And um, local fishermen still, you know, have to figure out different ways of making ends meet. Um, and I think more, more now, more than ever, people are realizing, and I think in large part, right, this has to do with the, you know, decline of U.S. empire and de-dollarization and, you know, maybe a, uh, the rise of a multipolar world. But I think that that is something that people are seeing, that there is a fall uh, or that there is um, U.S. hegemony is not actually as strong. Um Maybe a couple of years ago, there wouldn't have been that much regional support for Pedro Castillo. Um, and now it's really difficult for Dina Boluarte's uh, government, you know, coup regime government to really do anything in the, in, in the region, right? Um, of course, they still have U.S. and Canadian support. Um, and I think obviously without that, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't have a, you know, bloodline or lifeline, I mean. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it isn't really important that a lot of uh, people he, uh, wherever, right, are making those co the connections that, you know, uh, the fact that IDF, and Tunde can speak more to this, but in Cop City, you know, that uh, that ID, uh, the IDF will be going there to train, right? And it's not just going to be local Georgia uh, uh, police officers, it's going to be throughout the country and, like I said, internationally. Um, also making the connection with, you know, Peruvian uh, police forces going to France to train, right? Um, so people understand that, like, NATO is also involved and the West is involved. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's, it's really, really, really important to make those, um, those contradictions known, right? That we actually, though it seems like these are all siloed, you know, struggles that, in fact, we're facing very much the same uh, entity that is, you know, trying to uh, rob, rob the peoples of their sovereignty and, and their lands. Tunde, I'm going to come to you. Why do you think, or how would you explain to people, um, you know, just working class people in the U.S. that these issues that we're talking about here are connected to, um, to what's going on in the U.S.? Why should anyone in the U.S. care um, about the fact that, um, you know, these different places are being ransacked, that people are being displaced? I mean, like, what is your guys' approach to that, um, and I guess if you want to talk a little bit about what's happening uh, with the COP city stuff. I think this Zone of Peace campaign uh, uh, speaks to, you know, uh, as, as I think Eric and Kyle already kind of mentioned, you know, the domestic and, and global, um, you know, uh, aspects of, of this, what we're up against, right? Like the this this entity, the, the uh, US, EU, NATO uh, uh, axis, 
of domination, right? Where you know they're they're you know trying to to prevent uh, uh, the people for have from having any sort of say in terms of you know uh, um, you know or exerting control over their own destinies and lives, right? So you know, Cloud mentioned Cop City, which is uh, in many ways a response to uh, popular protests that's taken place across the U.S. Uh, uh, and and in Atlanta specifically. Right uh, in in this uh, so-called cop city, where or the so-called you know police training center, uh, where you know they'll be practicing uh, crowd control control tactics. They'll be practicing bomb detonations, and and um, uh, you know they'll have shooting ranges, uh, and really in mock city to to uh, uh, practice uh, urban warfare tactics uh, that they'll use on you know the regular folks here in Atlanta. Right, and so uh, I think the zone of peace. Uh, um, campaign really speaks to that in the sense that you know we're we're talking about the demilitarization of of our of our neighborhoods of our of our of our lives right and 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 so you know we can see with Cop City with the the building of you know U.S. bases across the Americas like this similar structure and the similar approach to to um, containing folks to to uh, subverting their uh, uh, people centered human rights right and so I think. You know, for us, I think a big part of this campaign is about making sure that folks recognize that, you know, we live in the Americas. Folks in the U.S. are part of this broader Americas region, right? And so we're experiencing a lot of the same uh, tactics and strategies uh, uh, that, you know, our, our enemies might use to, to prevent us from, from achieving uh, uh, our uh, liberation, right? And so I think for us, right, like we think that there has to be uh, that recognition and, and uh, folks need to join join hands with with our um, our siblings our brothers and sisters throughout the the, the Americas uh, to, to you know uh, uh, build this zone of peace right and to be part of this popular movement uh, for you know uh, equal rights and self-determination across the region and so you know one thing we're asking uh, folks across the region to do is to you know, endorse the Zone of Peace campaign, you know, to show support for this work and stay connected. Um, I think there's a link uh, on the website uh, uh, for blacklinesforpeace.com at, at the top, there's a Zone of Peace button where folks can, you know, read more and, and you know, uh, endorse and, and actually join the emerging uh, US, NATO, out of the Americas network to connect and really build with people and, and formations dedicated to the struggle. One thing that I found very, uh, um, fulfilling about this trip to Cuba was the ability to just build the relationships with folks who were engaged in struggle in Cuba uh, uh, to advance their revolution um, and, and you know, just to learn from their struggles as we talked about our own uh, fights against things like Cop City and other uh, uh, aspects of the struggle here in the U.S. And so I think, you know, just seeing our struggles con as connected is, is so key for, for folks here in the U.S. to, to really build a stronger a fight back against, you know, this system we're up against. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that although it is a, a campaign that's like from around the region, of course, um, includes all of the countries of the Caribbean, Latin America, it's particularly important to, you know, strengthen that call for the end of sanctions, which is the sixth of the initial core demands. Sanctions are war and illegal sanctions and blockades of 
of regional states, including all economic warfare and lawfare, and recognize their sovereignty as the U.S. is the you know the number one culprit in sanctioning um, these different countries to death. Of course, particularly Cuba, as we all know and have seen um, in person, but also Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, Haiti, and also many other countries um, overseas. Thank you guys so much for joining us today and presenting uh, this new campaign, Zone of Peace, to us. I really appreciate it. Erica, Clau, Tunde, and of course, um, Austin, who had to take off a little early. It was such a pleasure to hear from you guys, and I'm so glad that you guys are such good friends of Kasachu News. Of course, you're the most one of the most valuable um, organizations that we follow in the U.S. Um, that's really grounded and kind of connected uh, with what's going on around the global south. We all joke around about how out of out of touch, uh, you know, some of the organizations are in the global north, but BAP seems to be a bit more on the pulse than everyone else. So we really enjoy um, being connected with you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having, Thank you for having us on.